Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to Past Imperfect. I'm Alice Thompson. And I'm Rachel Sylvester. And we're speaking to extraordinary people who've overcome trauma or adversity to achieve great success. Our guest today is a star cricketer and a leading television sports commentator. Ebony Rainford Brent was the first black female cricketer to play for England and became a World Cup winner in 2009. Now she's a broadcaster who was one of the first female pundits on Test Match Special and also works for Sky Sports. She sits on the Surrey Management Board and tours schools encouraging children to pick up a bat and hit six. She couldn't be more different from the public school boys and their pristine whites who spend hours playing on perfectly rolled lawns to the sound of gentle applause from their parents. She grew up in a single-parent family surrounded by concrete in inner-city Herne Hill with violence and poverty all around. The difference cricket made was massive, she says. It took me into my own world, giving me something to validate myself. Ebony, thank you very much for joining us. Do you see yourself as a pioneer, do you think, and a role model, or are you just doing what you really love? Yeah, it's always a... I think there's two parts to that, that I would say. First of all, I always avoid the title role model, even though I get why, and you know you say it, is because I hate making mistakes. I know that sounds really weird, but I sometimes think when you put yourself on that pedestal and say, yes, I am. I think the other thing that has really struck me is I've got older and I've got into positions where... I'm quite unique in the position or the world I'm in, and you realise you have a voice. I guess I realise I have an opportunity to influence. So I wouldn't say I see myself as a role model as such, but I do see myself as being able to influence for those who, you know, I've been through parts of their journey or I understand that, or I realise someone looking up to me that would love to be in that position. So I prefer the term influencer than role model because I think role models set yourself up mm. for being almost too perfect, which we all have imperfections. So how did you start playing cricket? Did it feel like a really unusual choice? Mm. It was, yeah. yeah. So I had three older brothers, um, proper South London girl. Uh, talked, we mentioned it in them. A single parent home, but football was the obsessive thing, right? That's what everyone done. I wanted to be um, a Liverpool footballer and I loved Robbie Fowler and like, I was running around. And I remember the day, I was about 10 years old, when someone came to my primary school and said, do you fancy trying cricket? And the answer was no. I was not, I was like, why? And the truth is, all I'd ever seen was, you know, cricket was a bit on BBC those days as a kid. And it was men dressed in white clothing who all were Caucasian. Um, sometimes they looked a little bit portly to me. It, just didn't, it didn't reflect my image of inner in city London. So I was resistant. And it was fortunate a teacher who kind of persuaded me, said, look, you love sport, just give it a go. And the minute I hit the first ball, I hit it out of the cage. I remember being just like, wow. And also the teacher who was teaching it related to me. He was actually a, in a London club. Well, he's originally from Jamaica, but I could see sort of a bit of myself in him. So the minute I hit that ball, I was hooked. But I have to be honest, I was resistant to it because it felt so alien. Mm. 
Um, and then, you know, once I got hooked, that was it. I just, you know, it changed my whole life from that moment. Was it really fun at that stage? Did you did you have a really enjoyable childhood in some ways? I mean, the mm. really difficult times, but were there moments when you just really enjoyed messing around? With yeah, I, I the, uh, you know, you had play centre at school. I don't know if everyone had it, but I, was, I could not wait for play centre, which was like 3.30, and it was meant to shut at 6. And if you could push the parents or teachers, you'd get it till 7, where you just running around non-stop um i used to have you know those patches that they sew on your trousers to cover the rips <laughs> like i would have so many sewn on because i was just you know playing on anything that you can um it's pretty much a tomboy i suppose having three brothers as well that made me kind of quite boisterous um i should, you shouldn't say that in this modern day but i was very active and i think those are some of the, the happiest moments when you're a child and you're kind of oblivious because there was other stuff going on in the world which i'm sure i'll touch on but when you're oblivious to what's going on, I think that's what it is about sport is you do just go in. I think as an adult, you look back and think, I want to capture as many of those moments of pure joy. So I think that's what sport does for me. It just takes me into the world. And I think even as an adult, if I if I run around, I still feel that feeling um, of joy. And I got a lot of that as a child. I used to just play as much as I could. And were you always incredibly competitive? Yeah, I think that's having brothers, though. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. It's like they they were competitive with each other. I don't know what you guys were like, but it was definitely like that. And um, like even from like stealing food, like if mum puts down a good plate of food, someone's stealing your your, your, your food. So you're like, right, if you're going to steal my food, I'm going to steal your food. <laughs> and then, yeah, I think it was just always a, a joy. I liked, um, I liked competing because I was a lot younger than my brother. So they're all a fair bit older. I, I kind of just wanted to be part of the family. I didn't want to feel like I was the youngest. So I kind of... I think you develop this sort of um, drive to kind of be as good as or want to be in the conversation or if they're playing, I want to play too. And I, and I think that massively as a young... There's a lot of studies actually about the youngest in sport. Often you find a lot of them are the younger sibling because they're always trying to, to catch up with the others. Oh, that's fascinating. Mm. And your mum worked shifts in the mm. NHS and the, the local supermarket. Were you really close to her or do you think you were closer to your brothers when you were little? Yeah, I was very close to my mum. Mum, My mum sacrificed so much, actually. Um, she, you know, single parent, and especially as my sport journey progressed, and, you know, there's a point for parents where you realise you're actually now a taxi service, but my mum didn't drive. And I think she started to realise the commitments throughout my childhood for sport were getting so much more that... The only way she could manage was to work. She shifted to working night so she could get me to many things in the day. And then she'd work through the night and then come back and pick me up and take me to training. So me and mum had quite a strong relationship in terms of she just said to me, if you want to chase your dreams, chase it. I'll back you. I'll sacrifice if I have to. But we had to make a pact that I'd keep on top of my studies. I'd make sure the house was clean. You know, you do your part, but she mm. would make sure she enabled me. So in that sense, we had quite um, yeah, a partnership in a lot of ways, but mum was quite strict as well. <laughs> um, so I say the other bit is, you know, as a kid, you're sometimes, you know, good old Jamaican mum sometimes can, um, you know, very strict. So you always wanted to be on top of the rules. So you always had that edge of, you know, mum's sacrificing a lot for me. And I knew that from a very young age, a very, very young age. Um, but also it's like, don't don't upset mum as well or you'll feel the wrath. So mm. I was always making sure I stayed on top of studies as well as all my sport. And did you have a sense of life being a struggle? Did you go without food or were oh, you hungry? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, I think um, I knew from very young that life was a struggle. And after losing my brother in particular, so my mum, you know, was flying in her career for quite a long time and then obviously having kids. But when we lost my brother... Mum, you know, her work, she left work because my brother passed away in, in 
in the hospitals that she worked in and I think it became a bit harder and then life just got harder and harder and harder and I think that's a mixture of us as a family dealing with trauma and then also income got harder so I knew that the stress that you would feel when you know if the if money was a bit tight you knew it you could feel it on mum's face electric turn off the lights we can't afford the electricity I remember my first cricket course which it was two pounds a week to go or something like that and you could see the look on mum's face when you asked for the the mm. two pounds and that's why I always knew how much she was sacrificing for her to be able to give me that two pounds was quite a big stretch um you know we would walk everywhere didn't have a car um we you know we'd go and make sure we went to the market and found the cheapest you know we, we put in but I think it's made me very as an adult conscious of when people are going through something because I could see my mum was going through something from very young and I was I didn't want to add to her burden I just wanted to be uh, a support to it and I think that's when you listen to people like Marcus Rashford who are doing what they're doing now in the world I relate to hungry times times where the bills were stretched the stress the constant stress that it creates in a household when money's tight is hard so yeah I've I've definitely experienced that mm. um you know free school meals you know I went through a lot of that so you know so I'm fully aware of um how tough it can be for families that's kind of my whole experience when you were five years old, your eldest brother, Keith, who was mm. known as Jay, for all of you, mm. was killed in a knife crime. Can you tell us what actually happened that day? As yeah. Much as you know? Oof, it's something that I've only, how do I put it, in the last few years. So I'm 37 now and it happened when I was five and I would say it's taken me to about 35 to deal with it. It's only a few years ago and, and I've had, I've invested in in the therapy and stuff like that to process because... It was pretty traumatic, really, for our family. I was five. I still remember the moment. Um, it was our neighbour who knocked on the door to say that he'd been murdered in a knife crime incident. It was someone he knew and, um, yeah, stabbed him. I think it was 11 times um, to death. And because there was an ambulance strike on the day, so it took her too long and he, he bled to death. And, oh. yeah, I remember going to the hospital, um, yeah, like the last time seeing him before the machine was turned off and it's oof, it's um yeah it's a really really horrific experience to lose someone like that and i think it's a mixture of the manner in which someone dies like that and there's no there's never any answers to those questions and i think the other is the shock which i think a lot of people can relate to the shock of losing something very quickly and that just sent our whole world our family so i'd say life was really really good up till then and then after then you know it just got harder and harder mm. for everybody. And that's where I think challenges for my brothers started. Um, you know, drugs and crime. Um, and then for my mum, it was just really tough having to deal with her sons who are now spiring a little bit and losing a son. So, you know, I, I think one thing people don't understand with knife crime, I think there's, there's, there's so many things. There's the social conditions that lead to why these things happen. And then there's the other is that the... the, the turmoil that it leaves behind it doesn't mm. just you know we might see it in the newspaper and hear a horrendous story it's the it's the next 20 years that sometimes can be the worst so I'd say um you know it's when you hear about knife crime it's not only something that breaks your heart you know they're going to go through something mm. horrific emotionally for a long time so yourself at the age of five what did that feel going mm. into the hospital that must have been horrendous yeah I mean well I don't know it's one of those um I don't know, we've all lost somebody and we've all had to deal with that moment when you 
possibly have to just deal with it and see seeing someone you love. I think it's one of those I don't even want to. Violent way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is. and you almost just don't want to go too deep into the emotions. If, if yeah. you know, you kind of process it from a surface level, and you kind of get to, but going back into like living mm. through it is, is turmoil, really. Really. Mm. So, um, I think that's why sport became so powerful for me because I couldn't really express mm. what I was feeling as a kid anyway, and mm. um, just kind of running and running and having fun with it was was the the only way I think I could get out emotions at that young age. And did you ever see the guy again or not? Yeah, he w- he went to prison. Um, I never saw him. Um, we got notified when he was let out. Maybe he got sentenced to life. But it's one of those things that it's kind of his... He went inside and that was it. No connection after the court case and he was found guilty, really. And I was so young to process. And as an adult, I have zero interest in... Mm you know, finding out about him. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I've, that one is he's where he is and he's gone about his journey and he's, you know, I don't know how he feels now, but it's it's a long time later mm-hmm. and he did what he did. And did you feel you had to protect your mother, that your mum was going through all this, that almost that, although you were only five, that you had to shield her in some way? Did I have to protect her? I don't think, I don't think protection was the word. Um, I think I just knew she was going through pain. Mm. That's how I'd describe it. And it wasn't, you know, I couldn't stop anything. I think we were all going through pain. Um, and you just, you know, you just want to be there to support each other as much as you can. You know, mum did loads for me. Like I talked about her, her sacrificing um, and the amount of time she she put into me was her protecting me, I suppose. So I think it's more you just want to be there as much as you can for your family. Um, mm. That's all you can do really is be there as much as you can for each other. Did it make you very frightened as a, uh, when you were growing up? Did you have mm. a sense of your community feeling quite violent and the streets being violent, or, or did I it think not... it's just life? So I don't know. I don't mm. know. How, I, I wouldn't say you know for a lot of people who, if you grew up in an inner city urban environment which had um, issues of poverty and things like that going on, it, like it's it's normal. So what I mean by that is it's mm. it's not unusual to see a police car or hear one or know that something's going on in the house this this side or that road or that's not so i wouldn't say i had any um extreme fear it's just kind of is how life is it's a bit like now you know you move out into um you know places which are much more uh wealthy so i've you know been able to you know make a good living for myself and live in a lovely place now but as soon as i go back which i do you know all the time to those sort of environments it's quite normal it's quite normal um because that's just how life is you just grow up in that environment that's how the way of the world is so I wouldn't say I sort of walked around in fear in that sort of way mm. and your brother was 11 years older than you wasn't he was it was he 16 when he died mm. were you really close to him because there is that bond isn't there mm. with the youngest elders yeah my brother my brother Jay he was um how do I describe it he was he was such a warm um loving person he was a sort that spoiled you so you know, um, I remember him getting me like a, a lovely green coat and just always spoiling me. He loved to play sport. Um, he was very sort of touchy feely and sort of um, that sort of brother that, in some ways, I don't know, it's like that perfect brother. And I suppose it it makes it harder because I think he was the oldest and I was the youngest, so you get spoiled. Mm-hmm. And then to lose that kind of love. Uh, but I, I don't think I've lost the feeling, which is quite a nice thing. Like, I haven't. I feel like I can still feel his essence all the time. Um, you don't lose that 
that um that joy and i suppose i'm kind of stuck there because that's the last memory mm. i have but mm. he was um he was a very very caring very sweet guy he was very loved um by a lot of people i remember the funeral having it was absolutely rammed um with people from all around the community i mean it was just packed and and i still walk around now and people stop me and say i remember your brother like oh, people i won't know but they will know that I was his little sister and, and people knew him he was he was really well loved by the community mm. and I think that helps you a little bit process knowing that even though he had a short life he was still loved was he almost like a father figure in some ways because he was older not he? him my brother Dominic is who's my oldest the next brother down mm. um he is and he always has been and most probably always will be to an extent um he was quite uh he still is quite a responsible guy um in a lot of ways and has always been you know quite practical he would make sure you know i remember times where money was tight and he was a bit older working and he would help me buy cricket boots to get into you know my training i remember when i was injured and and i was out for a long time he funded and and you know him himself from his work would pay for all my sort of treatment and stuff and to do he was doing that like from a late teenager into his 20s mm. um and even now yeah it's you know it's a weird one i've already said to him if i do ever get married which i don't know what will happen <laughs> but you know he, it will be him walking me down mm. the aisle so it's a weird one because you don't want to put on somebody that label because you know he he was meant he's a you know a brother rather than an adult but i would say he has um he's offered to be a lot of stability mm. that i maybe needed through life so mm. I, I owe dominic a lot and we're very tired i just came back from ireland this week where we hung out and have you ever met your father or been in touch with him? Yeah, twice, I think, twice. So my brother and my brother. My father was American. I was ward of court, which is basically, you know, my dad was quite violent. I didn't know because I, I wasn't around, but that's my understanding. And then, yeah, I, I just knew as a as a kid, he was just not someone that I necessarily needed in my life. But he got ill when I was 16, around 16, um... And they weren't sure if he'd pass. So I actually went to America to see him. And, I, you know, I was looked after, but I went to America to see him for a bit, which was a bit weird because it was just like meeting a stranger. And then I think I might have seen him once as a kid, but, you know, he didn't live in London. He lived in America. So mm. I don't have a huge amount of connection. Um, I did speak to him when he passed. He passed only a little while ago, a few years, maybe a year and a half ago. And, and I did speak on the phone, but that's it, really. It's, mm. it's, it's, it's not someone I had an emotional connection with. So as much as it's... It's a sad mm. to not have a fa family member. You had I had so many people in my life that, to an extent, it became a bit irrelevant. Mm. And when Jay died, you talked about how your the family became quite chaotic and almost a tumultuous cycle of poverty. You talked about how, how did that mm. manifest itself? What happened? Yeah, it was just it was tough. Um, money got tighter. Everyone got more stress. More shouting in the household. Uh, more arguments between everybody uh, it went from you know being much more loving and caring mm. to a lot more everybody's seriously stressed out mm. uh, and I think that's why I just love sport really you just get out mm. and about really mm. and how did your teachers react at school were they kind of incredibly supportive or mm. did they act as role models or was it more your coaches in the sport yeah I had a mix really I had a load of teachers um, who've been amazing from primary school I think there was a few who were very, um, very clear on, they saw my sporting potential, but also saw my academic potential and supported me. There's a few that stand out when I got to secondary school, um, a teacher called Mrs. Picard, um, who was at my school, Greycoats, which was something that my mum really made sure that she wanted me to get into a good school. 
um, out the area actually, which was quite important to her. And I ended up sort of traveling to Victoria and she, she saw my sporting potential and she was quite tough on me, but very, very clear that if I wanted to chase the dream of playing sport, she would put everything in. She, um, she was a hard taskmaster. She'd make you work hard, but she, she gave me a lot of discipline that I think you needed. But I think the biggest influence for me was a lady called Jenny Washtrack, who I think she could see, she was a coach who first spotted me and put me into the kind of world of cricket, took me out of um, kind of playing street cricket and got me into the structure. And she, um, you know, she's passed away now, but I owe, I would say I owe her most of this opportunity that I have now because, you know, she, she, she never asked questions of what was going on at home, but she could see mum was, you know, coming from work late at night. And so she would offer to take lifts. She got scholarships. Um, and she would she would just literally come and pick us up and her mum just kind of had this unwritten understanding of she'd just help her out and help me out so she's the the number one influence i think on opening up the door you know we talk about social mobility but i don't think it would have happened if someone didn't actively go i'm going to support you from this environment into another one mm. um so i owe her the world really and you talked about you never really noticed race or colour until you started mm. playing cricket. What mm. happened that made you suddenly notice it? Did you feel a sense of racism? I wouldn't say I felt racism. What I was aware of is I was never made to feel different in my normal world. So mm. everyone was just different. Um, and when I say different, uh, you know, culture was rich of different people. So, you you know, like I was saying, you'd eat... You know, one dollar's next door neighbours, Jamaican food, some was African food, some was Greek food, some, you know, you're just going through Asian food. Um, and at no stage did anyone feel above or below anybody else or know what, and being different wasn't um, weird. So I don't actually have any memories through my schooling and London journey of being different. As soon as I walked into the cricket world, though, it was... You know, it was quite an anomaly for many. I don't think many had seen a black person or mm. maybe hadn't engaged a huge amount. And so your hair becomes a spectacle. The food you eat becomes, you know, and you just quite quickly were quite aware of um, the, the lack of engagement many people have with different cultures. And I think the next is many of the ignorant thoughts and, you know, perceptions that people have um that became quite apparent quite quickly. So I wouldn't. I don't think as a, as a kid I, I would have said it was racism because you were just kind of why why am I so interesting to you all? Because um, you know, and then and then it becomes you know. Then as you, I think you get older, you start to to process and understand. Um, and then you know sometimes it becomes insulting, and you start to mm -hmm. realise, look, this is um, there's some there's something not quite right here, and, and you realise you know you start to feel uncomfortable and. Um, very different and um, very awkward and, and sort of stuff like that. And I, I suppose I shifted myself to try and fit in more, but it's quite hard to fit in when I suppose you're quite different. Look, I'm the first black woman to play and I suppose you kind of go through a journey where, you know, you're playing cricket with people who have maybe never seen anybody from a different culture before, never really interacted. And so I understand that, you know, mistakes were made, but I suppose you experience that continuously day on day. It starts to get a bit wearing. And did you ever think of giving up, or did you actually think I've yeah. just got to prove myself? Or yeah. I am actually better because on the you know on the field, yeah, you can prove yourself, can't you? You can yeah. just be tougher or harder or faster. Yeah, I, th I, I flipped and flopped a bit um, in terms of I knew I loved the sport, so that's the thing that I loved more than anything is like anyone who's in, in love with this sport, whacking a ball and throwing a ball and diving around. Um, that 
joy to me was amazing. Um, I did question, you know, especially as you get into sort of later teenage years, like, do I really want to put up with all this all the time? Like, I don't have to when I'm not in this environment. Um, and also you're aware that if you questioned it, you would get labelled with being, you know, aggressive or troublemaking. Mm. So you think, all right, don't say anything. So I did question it, but I think my dream of actually realising I could play for England was actually quite powerful. Mm. Like, you can play for your country. And there were lots of also very positive people and friendships that you develop um, through that whole process that you kind of, look, there's, there's, there's a dream here I could chase. Um, there's some friends here and people I know I'll know for life and, and enjoy. So... Yeah, I, I stuck with it and I look back at a lot of the experiences and things I've gone through and I think, you know, um, I'm glad I did. You're listening to Past Imperfect with Alice Thompson, Rachel Sylvester and our guest this week, the cricketer and broadcaster, Ebony Rainford-Brent. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Welcome back to Past Imperfect with Alice Thompson, Rachel Sylvester and our guest this week, the cricketer and broadcaster, Ebony Rainford-Brent. You must be one of the few girls. There weren't as many girls as boys, mm. I assume. Yeah, I spent a lot of time playing in men's teams with boys. I was on the academy at Surrey, so a lot of the guys um, who've come through and played professional cricket now for Surrey in England, I was training with them and you have to be quite resilient. So I think through my experience of mum being quite a hardcore Jamaican woman, I think having three brothers growing up in an inner city where, you know, you had to carry yourself a certain way to, to be comfortable. I grew up with quite a lot of resilience. Um, what I would say, though, is I'm glad the world has progressed from where it is now to them because, you know, you naturally deal with environments which are very male-dominated and, you know, certain kind of energy. And it's quite hard when you're often one of the few females in that world. Um and and I think it's great to see how things have started to progress to open up and be a little bit more um, inclusive and dynamic um, because I suppose going through that as a female on your own, it is tough. But I would say the one thing I'd, I was fortunate to be blessed with through maybe my mum and our own experiences is a bit of resilience. So I, I dealt with the tough stuff. And like you say, I've also made a lot of amazing friends who, you know, have really supported me through life. Some of them must have been a lot richer than you as well, weren't they? I mean, oh, that, yeah, of course. <laughs> I mean, How did you afford all the kit? Because the kit is still quite expensive, yeah. isn't it? There all seems to be loads. Yeah, that's where Jenny came in, and that's what I mean. Is like my first bat, I still, this is the only bit of kit I've really kept, is my first bat, which we bought in Brixton Market for £5. I remember that shift of realising, like, all these kids had spikes, and, you know, the average kit most probably cost about 350 quid, and there was no way mm. we could afford that. And mum, we went down to Brixton, we were hunting the markets and we found it. It's really, really old bat. I mean, I'm going to try and see if I can get it 
Um, looked at, but I think it might be from like the 50s. Um, and we got it for five pounds. And that was the first butt I ever had. And that's that's what I was using. And I remember a few people would laugh because you could see how old it was. <laughs> yeah. But it it was survived. Um, and then Jenny, this is where Jenny came in because she got me scholarships. I, got, I remember getting um, so many supported scholarships. Gunnar Moore came on board, who's a cricket brand. Um, I got support through people like Sports Aid and all the different program so without those scholarships because those used to give us a bit of money to be able to afford the train and the travel there's no way we could have afforded it mm, there's mm. absolutely no way you know I have no doubt even getting that five pound bat was like hard for mum um and so that's the why it's the one thing I hold on to I got asked the other day if I'd consider putting it into an exhibition and I was like I'm not letting go of that bat <laughs> oh. I can't because it's you know I think it's all the sacrifice and everything yeah and the memories that mm. in it are just uh, pretty beautiful really your full name is amazing. So it's Ebony Jewel, Cora Lee, Camellia Rosamond, Rainford, Brent. Mm. And when you went for your first trial, that it caused a problem, didn't it? That people were confused. What what happened? Well, it wasn't. Yeah, it wasn't so much confusion. It was. Um, I, I've always said that I, when I got my first England selection letter, so it was. I was about fourteen, and it said, um, Ebony Jewel, Rainford, Brent, you've been selected to play for England. I remember going to my mum, going. Mum, it's not me. It must be another Ebony. I didn't believe it was me. And I remember her sort of breaking down and saying, look, Ebony, I don't think there's many other Ebony jewels of brands <laughs> in the world. So I think it's you. So, um, yeah, take that letter. So Was she crying? When, I mean, yeah. It's very emotional, it must be. Oh, it must be, yeah. Mum mum's, always wanted a girl as well. So I think I definitely... And, and the reason why I have so many names, actually, is because she'd always wanted to go. I had three boys and been saving up names that she wanted. Jewel was in there. I've got a lot of names from previous grandmas and stuff like that. Her favourite flowers in there, all sorts. They were meant to be more, but apparently um, when she was doing the registry, they said, you've got to stop now. <laughs> you got to the, the end of it. So, yeah, so I think it's an, also an interesting one because it sounds posh, actually. A lot of people think it's posh. Mm-hmm. Uh, rather than actually, it's too because I was a single parent. Mum gave the the mum and dad surname and all that sort of stuff. So a lot of people think I was posher than I am, and then they meet you and they're like, "Oh, you're you're definitely not as posh." But yeah, it's been really nice having a long name. Actually, it it definitely has stood out throughout your career and stuff. It's just hard work when you have to call the bank and go <laughs> through your name and read out um, your name in detail. But yeah, yeah, it's but good cool. on lists, isn't it? It is a serious list. The <laughs> I don't even think I know it in the right order. Actually, I was thinking about this the other day. Um, I say it in the actual wrong order because it was just easier as a kid to try and remember it in the order. So yeah, it's, um, it's definitely a long one. So what did it feel when you got into the England team? That must mm. have been incredible vindication of all the sacrifices your mum had made. And yeah. Made. I think, that, I think it was, it was more important because uh, there was quite a big experience I had when I was 19, I was at university. So studying chemistry at UCL. Um, and I was trialing for the main, the full England team because I played juniors and, um, I had a, a horrific back injury. One day I sort of bent over after training to pick up a remote when I got home, fell over, never walked properly again for a year. And it turned out I like two prolapse discs. I had all these sort of problems and I was out of cricket for a year and I couldn't sit up properly for a year. And I, um, yeah, I had to leave university for a bit and I was told I might never play sport again. It was pretty tough experience. I mean, I would genuinely say I was in like serious depression for a year. Um, and it was my mum and my brother Dominic who both like when I was down and out I mean down and out you know like just just gone really um who kind of kept encouraging me my mum was trying to give me all these motivational cds and dvds and stuff and she in one of them it told me like write your goals up on the wall and I wrote two which is to get my master's in chemistry 
and to play in the World Cup in 2009. And I wrote it up and I just left it on my wall. And so I think when I finally got back to playing, which took three years, so I mean, I was out for a year and then it got back to sort of running and walking a bit for the next year. And then the third year got back to playing. So when I actually got selected for England and then we had this amazing run with the World Cup, World T20 and Ashes, and it meant so much because not only sport had meant so much to me from a kid, you also had the sacrifice for my mum, what my mum and brother did for me, and especially getting me back from like a really dark place and being told I might never play sport again mm. to playing. So I think the, the emotions, I remember being on the plane when we were going to Australia and I'd written up that goal of I wanted to be in that yeah. World Cup. And I just remember crying, really. I had my glasses on and, you know, you try and keep your head down. But it was just kind of you reflect on the journey from start to finish and know, yeah, how powerful it was. Mm. And is there one moment on the pitch, like there was, you know, one moment when you were batting or one mm. particular six you did? Or can you? Th is there one that crystallises yeah. everything that you thought was just I don't think perfect. On, on the pitch as such, it was, it was in Australia when we won the World Cup in the, in the Ashes and we were, when they announced that we'd won and like the cameras were there and we were on the stage and you know the the champagne's flying you know you just kind of just for a moment it's very surreal it feels a bit matrixy like the way the world kind of slows down and you're just like i cannot believe mm. like i'm here um at this moment like winning a world cup with your your your, your, your country and what it meant so i think it was that it was just kind of like felt like the world was in slow motion and you kind of just feel the the the, the joy of everything so that for me is is the moment there's been so many and i think you know our team as a whole had to come together and really fight because we weren't when we when i first got it back in that team on the run up to work we weren't great to start with and we had to like work over a period of 18 months to become the best in the world and so you learned so much being around really driven motivated mm. people and so i think you also take out the friendships when you get to that stage of you know working with people to try and be your best and represent it's pretty amazing and do you think winning the world cup also gave you people new respect for you and for mm. women's cricket as well there was yeah. a moment when people attitudes changed yeah massively i think in some ways when you i would say i've learned the word privilege you know some people feel uncomfortable saying the word privilege i would say i didn't grow up with a privilege but i would say that that moment has completely changed my life for so many reasons um others now validate you because you know you, you oh everybody's world cup winning and people mm. do treat so i noticed you got treated differently um <laughs> and also is, men as well the men who hadn't won a world yeah. cup so it's suddenly like yeah they had something haven't yeah you? and the men i don't think the men had won the 50 over world cup at that point so we got a lot more respect mm. in the media um i would say places i go all of a sudden people were just treating you differently um I, I realised, I guess, what life can be like after that moment when you actually have privileges or you're in a position of influence or power because I would say my whole experience has changed from that. Um, you know, prior to that, it was, you know, a lot of people kind of judged on why as a woman are you doing that when you should be doing this or you could be doing this or um, why are you chasing this dream of, you know, cricket at that stage was still semi-professional and so, you know, a lot of people thought it didn't make sense actually and then after that and then... The coverage changed, that changed the opportunities to move into the media, that my whole world changed from that moment. So I felt pretty lucky since that moment because I think it's given maybe external validation to the world. It maybe has not changed my internal, mm. but I think it how people perceive you and what you do um, does change from, from winning something like that. And do you think there is still sexism in the game in the way there is with mm. um, 
women's football, I think, still. Do you think mm. that is still a problem with women's cricket? Uh, it is. It, I think the, the issue for me is um, I think what, things have progressed in terms of more women coming into the game, more opportunities developing. I still struggle to see women in senior leaders leadership positions enough mm. um you know i sit in a boardroom uh, there's another lady called claire connor who's um you know director at ecb which is the, the governing body and she she's doing well but you still look around day to day and think i want to see more women in positions of power and i think partly it's systematic i also think the other side is women can be off put going into some of these environments you don't see people who look like you or doing those and so sometimes we don't put ourselves forward for those but i also think the world um when it comes to seeing more women in positions of power has to change. But what I would say though is, um, it's in the 25 years I've been involved, it's massively changed. I think, you know, as younger, I would have heard a lot of sexist comments, women can't, what you're doing here. You know, I heard a lot, um, quite a lot in my early years. And I would say in the last five to 10, that's dramatically um, changed. I think now though, I want to see more women in, in real influence mm. positions. Mm. And is it lonely playing cricket? Because although it's a team game, mm. where you're batting, you're bowling, you're catching, you're on your own. So mm. every moment actually is a huge amount of pressure. You can really let down your team. Did you feel that? Is it quite hard in that way? In a way that football, is, unless you're doing penalties, it's mm. less easy to unpick who's playing well and who isn't. Yeah, it's br in that sense, it's brutal, um, I would say, cricket. I think, I think I liked it for those two reasons. I liked that you could be part of a team because I love people I just I've always loved being around people I'm a bit extreme extrovert really I always want to be people so I love that but I did actually like that opportunity to kind of you know exactly what you've contributed to the performance however on the flip side is when you don't which happens you know I've been there where you get uh, I remember I've got a record which is a horrendous record I've got three ducks which is basically getting out for naught in a row for England in 24 hours we played three T20s really quickly against South Africa and you, you as soon as you get out in that sort of way you feel you know when you walk back into the team room you can feel frostiness sometimes you can feel you know you've let us down you can you feel that um, and it's okay once or twice but if you're not performing consistently that frostiness you know you feel it um, I think this is where, you know, as I've got older and I've worked in performance environments, you try and create cultures where, you know, people people don't feel um, don't feel too bad or alienated because it is pretty, it's quite a lone, that, that's when I think mm. the lonely dust does come in and then you swirl in your own brain, which is very different to games like football or basketball where I played and you just, you just get out there and you play and then at the end of the game you reflect. Whereas if cricket you get out, I was an opening bat, so I'd always face the first ball. And if you got out and you have to sit there for hours, <laughs> hours, and then if your team loses and you think, oh, my God, and then it happens again and again, it is it is brutal emotionally. So, so how hard. did you cope with that pressure? Did you yeah. have coping strategies? Yeah, I learned. I, I was I was against sports psychology when I was like younger, early days when it was first introduced. And by the end, I was all over it. And in the sense of, you know, you have to learn um, a lot of routines. So I had to go through a lot of routines. I had to learn to calm myself down and breathe you had to learn to shut off negative thoughts and improve your self-talk i did a lot of that i did something called nlp as well which is a neuro-linguistic program which is basically about how our thoughts impact our actions and beliefs and you just have to rewire yourself and i think learning one thing i would say about being a sports person it's like failure you can't let failure get in the way mm. um and but you're constantly failing so every day i wanted to get 100 but you, it's very rare you get that 100 
And so you have to learn how to continue to show up the same amount, regardless of whether you failed or not. Um, so sports psychology helped. I learned a lot of routines, a lot of techniques, um, a lot of stuff about resilience. Um, and I think actually, like I look back at life and a lot of things I've, I've gone for, I think that grounding in sport makes such a difference to um, being able to, to just handle tough stuff or handle difficult times, handle loneliness, mm. handle depression. Like I think it's helped me kind of get a sort of baseline of almost like an inner steel to kind of deal with some of that stuff. So um, yeah, psychology and a lot of the tools, I, I definitely think it works. Like when I first was introduced, I thought this is all, you know, what is this? And actually now I massively invest in coaching and mindset and skills because um, I think the mind is so powerful. And do you think having dealt with adversity and um, become more resilient as a mm. child helped you in your career in that way? Yeah, well? massively. I think um, I definitely feel like I got like a bit of in, like street grit, if that makes sense. I'm quite, um, you know, I'm not thrown by small things because I've I've experienced so many things so for me if I've got food in the cupboard I'm like I'm happy so I would say my baseline for happiness is actually quite low because so then things don't throw me off if I don't have something like that I would say resilience in terms of um, someone saying something um, critical which you know you get a fair bit that I get it in the media I get it on Twitter you get it on social but I think you know, you grew up in a world where it was quite gritty and you, you people were uh, quite expressive and you heard all sorts of things. I think I'm, I'm, I'm not too phased by too many things because I've experienced actually quite a depth of pain, a depth of um, experiences that um, now as an adult, I feel most of the time in life is quite good. Um, even when it's not, I'm actually like, well, it's still way better than it's ever been, so I'll take it. And I don't, I don't over worry about too many things because I always think, you know, I'm, I'm living such a privileged existence now, like uh, just enjoy as much. Um, so I think it allows me to, um, to take risks. I think I take, I've taken a lot more risks with career because I'm not worried about image of, you know, looking like something. I don't care, you know, to me, I'm like, you know, I grew up pretty working class down, down to earth type of thing. So I don't have an image to protect. It's like, I am what I am. So... I think it's allowed me to take risks. I think it's allowed me to deal with um, a lot of challenges. Um, and, and in hindsight, I, I don't think I'd actually want a different start. I really wouldn't because, um, you know, I think it's to be able to go through life and actually have that feeling of, you know, I'd say one thing I have, I don't know what I have in life, but I would say resilience is the mm. number one thing. Mm. I've been through so many things and I've learned how to process. I've learned how to deal with a lot. Um, and I'd back myself to deal with quite a few tough mm. things, really. And is there still too little diversity then at the top that you need more? You need more people mm. that have come up that that aren't coming up through that sort of private school, public mm. school system where there are cricket pitches at schools and mm. you, you get more help. Do you need to try and do more to get children from all sorts of backgrounds in? Yeah, 100%. Um, I work, I've set up a charity called ACE, for example. Um, when Once I set up... So I'm, on the board at Surrey, for example, which is a great club. It's been going for 175 years. We're in the heart of quite a strong black community, but there's none coming through our system. Um, and without being on the board and being able to bring up, this is an issue, I think we need to invest in it. These are some areas, mm. these are some... Um, I don't think you'd have that voice to be able to have that impact. Mm. And also, it wasn't that there was anyone... Um, 
against each other. It wasn't anybody's consciousness because it hadn't been their experience. And so what my what my awareness is as I've sort of got to higher levels of influence within the game is without someone at the table who sees the world differently and then also able to influence the environment, big holes are missed. And so quite quickly, we you know, this charity set up, we're now running in three cities and we're going to be in six and we're bringing through kids from different backgrounds and they're getting picked in the systems and it's really exciting. Um, and I'm fully aware that without that, it wouldn't have happened. Same when it's come to women. I've, you know, I've worked a lot as a director of women's cricket where you bring issues that relate to females accessing the game and without a woman at the table, it, it wasn't that, again, anyone was against anything. They just, it wasn't even in the consciousness of this is something we need to consider or need to prepare for. So, you know, I, I massively advocate for strong leadership at the top and I think better organisations now are trying to seek that diversity and inclusiveness some are getting forced to do it because they think they have to tick the box but I think good organisations now realise I've got to diversify at the top because you want to be able to access more people and people need to be in a position to mm. think about more Do you think you've got more abuse in sport than or in broadcasting because in some ways I think mm. people get more angry when you get female mm. That's a good in sport that they they kind of think it's a male professional and yeah. you, you, know, you should get out whereas actually in the women's cricket team mm. it's acceptable in some ways because it's the women's yeah. team the most abuse i've got which has calmed down a little bit but is on twitter so that's i would say the most place i get and that's that mixes it was a mixture of race and um gender so often it's often it's usually more about it's not your place to be there get back in the kitchen it's not a women's role and I don't I, I don't even mind when I read those anymore because you're like get over yourself mm. really you're living in the dark yeah. times um, so I'd say the most abuse you get is through social media um, thank God for all these filters because I have them now on a lot of my stuff so I don't I don't see stuff um, you notice as soon as you go on air often it's usually just kind of aggression against you being in that position Um and you kind of learn to realise, like, some people are, are uneducated when it comes to seeing a woman or a person of colour or someone who doesn't maybe perfectly pronounce their T's in that position. Um, and and that's, you know, that's something I can't change, but I'm not going to expose myself to it. So, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if it... I think it's got better. I would definitely say, for me personally, the world's got better. But I also think the world has got better as I've got into more of an influence position. So what I mean by that is, um, you know, I think if in my environment someone was to say something racist or sexist to me now, I'm in a position that I can call them out. And, <laughs> mm. you know, um, whereas when I was maybe in a position of less power, I experienced more mm. because I think you, people knew that they could get away with stuff. So, um, yeah, I don't know. It's a difficult one with race. I just hope that you know, as a as a country that we we find more harmony than disharmony. And I think there's a lot of positive change and I think there's a lot of recognition of some challenges. But I think we've got a long, long way to really heal divides. And looking back at yourself at the age of five when your brother died, what do you wish that you'd known then? Or what would you like to have said to yourself at, at that time? Mm. Or actually, did you not need to say anything because you sort of had it inside yourself anyway? That's a really good question. I think all I say is everything's going to be all right. Mm. Literally everything's... And, and I think if I would have known everything was going to be all right at each stage, you'd be a little bit more okay. You know, I think... I'd, so it's enjoy it more almost, Yeah, it? or just even if you're going through something tough, it's going to be okay. Mm. Um, and having that faith that you will handle it. And that's one thing 
uh, as humans we're, we're often more resilient than we know we are and we don't know till you go through it and so I think the the the, the advice I would just say is not not to change anything just it's going to be all right and you're more resilient than you know you are and most humans we only find that by getting put through something and having to overcome it so do you think in some ways you wouldn't have achieved as much if you'd had an easier time yeah 100 percent, 100 percent. if life was much more cushy i don't think i would have fought as hard um and what do you say to girls now when you see mm. them so you must see girls in the playground mm. messing around with cricket balls or mm. football or do you, what do you say to them do you say just go for it yeah i say i say enjoy yourself i say express yourself i think it's really important especially for females and young girls to to feel comfortable expressing yourself i think sometimes society and young girls is big dropouts because girls worry about image and identity and seen a certain way and it's almost saying look enjoy yourself express yourself um feel comfortable if you want to be competitive go out there and, and just fully fully be um i think it's really important to do that so when yeah when i see the kids now and also i do say chase your dreams so i do say quite honestly kids if you want something you know we've got academy at the moment going and I'll say to them, if you want it, chase it. Um, you know, there'll, there'll be people to support you, whether it's us, your parents or whatever, but you have to chase it. And I think my mum was quite clear with me. I wouldn't, what I was lucky with is I didn't have a pushy parent, but what she said is if you want something, you have to commit to it. So you have to decide. Um, and so I think we get so much reward committing to something, whatever it works out, whether it works out or doesn't. Um, so I do say to kids, enjoy yourself, express yourself, but chase that dream and commit to it if you want it. Ebony, in for Brent, thank you so much for talking to us. Thank you for having me, it's been brilliant. You've been listening to Past Imperfect with Rachel Sylvester, Alice Thompson and our guest this week, the cricketer and broadcaster Ebony Rainford-Brent. This is a Wireless Studios production for Times Radio, produced by Ben Mitchell. To make sure that you never miss an episode, you can subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts and listen back to our previous guests on the Times Radio app. We'll be back next week with another edition of Past Imperfect. Until next time, thanks for listening. If you've been affected by any of the issues raised in this episode or others in the series, please go to our podcast page or website where there are links to charities and organisations who are there to help.